Chapter 8 of Into the Frozen South by James Marr. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. We run into ice. On the night following the easing up of the storm, I got a fine sleep, and all the troubles we'd experienced seemed to fade into insignificance. Sleep is a great healer of wounds, and it soothes many a problem. But in the morning there was a pretty big sea running, and the wind was high, whilst as the feverish pitching of the hull caused the propeller to race so disconcertingly that it appeared determined to twist itself off and sink down to rest on the ocean floor. The engines were stopped and the ship proceeded under sail alone. I had the wheel on this morning, but I'd got the knack of handling her by now and found it none so irksome. The wind kept on freshening all the time, not to the same proportions as those of our recent blow, but some of the black squalls were heavy enough to set the rigging harping with the real storm note which is an inspiring sound, and we shipped quite a lot of water over the bows. So, as the conditions seemed to be worsening rather than improving, we hove to again after lunch with the mizzen and staysail set, and the clank of the pumps recommenced. Down below, everything was soaked. Even Sir Ernest's cabin and Mr. Wilde's had suffered with the rest. The boss's bunk was so completely saturated that he had a bed made up on the wardroom settee, though he used this makeshift berth only a little, for during the bad weather he was almost constantly on the bridge, though his officers, sensing that all was not well with him, repeatedly urged him to go below and rest but instead of resting he actually stood another officer's watch in addition to his own in order that his subordinate might secure what he considered to be much needed rest that of course was shackleton all over one of the qualities that made him a leader but Certain of the officers were growing uneasy. They thought the boss was doing far too much, taking more out of himself than he should have done. And yet, despite their protests, Sir Ernest said, You fellows are tired and must get rest. Leave the ship to me. And from that he would not be shifted although he must have known in his own heart that the strain was telling more unbearably every day. Throughout the day, the wild conditions continued, but abating somewhat towards three in the morning, way was once more got on the ship and the voyage proceeded. Some idea of the havoc wrought by the pouring seas was conveyed to my mind when I bailed out Sir Ernest's cabin which was literally a wash with dirty water, everything floating about at hazard, the whole presenting anything but an inviting spectacle. 
but a bit of conscientious swabbing restored things and in a while with a light breeze and a calming sea it was almost impossible to believe that we had weathered such a snorter as had befallen us so the old year came to an end its departure signalled by a double ringing of the ship's bell and we looked forward with better heart to nineteen twenty two i had the first wheel of the new year from midnight to two p m the sea was smooth and the wind just sufficient to be comfortable so that we ran along easily under fore and aft canvas alone after breakfast i came in for a bit of amateur engineering being detailed to assist the second engineer to repair the deck winch an interesting if somewhat greasy task the wind was dropping in place of the turbulent waters which had thrashed us so unkindly a long oily swell ran across to the narrowed horizon and a wet mist drooped over all a mist that later turned to heavy rain persistent rain which was by way of being a blessing to people limited in their fresh water supply Today i sighted my first penguin it was swimming some distance away from the ship and as an inhabitant of the waste world of the south was an object of considerable interest the weather was becoming increasingly cold and already many of the members of the crew had donned clothing that gave them the look of antarctic explorers most of them also were growing beards which gave them the aspect of pirates who had lost all self-respect early on the morning of the second of january we passed quite close to a large school of whales and later on vast numbers of penguins and other antarctic birds the temperature having dropped to thirty-eight a close lookout was kept for the ice this temperature indicated and at ten a m our first iceberg was plainly in sight though but a mere speck on the horizon i don't know what the others felt i know i was decidedly thrilled for this was the far-flung sentinel of those vast defences that it was our aim to penetrate it was like seeing an enemy's picket and knowing that away behind him were massed formidable odds against which indomitably we must pit our strength and courage course was altered and by one o'clock we were abreast the berg no monster but all the same quite big enough to be impressive it was a hundred feet high which means seven hundred feet were submerged as icebergs only show one-eighth their bulk above the surface and judging by the gaping fissures in its sides it was an old stager rapidly tiring of life and returning to its native element as quickly as it could it looked very austere very cold though undeniably beautiful with the blue cavern boring into its massiveness 
the sea about was strewn with smaller pieces of ice which had broken away and not yet melted these formed what i was told is called the tail of the berg by the time we had passed it fairly the sun was dropping down the western sky in a blaze of scarlet and saffron and gold an inspiring sight that reminded me of that picture of turner's the fighting tamarere during the middle watch two more bergs were seen without difficulty for they show up whitely and seem to give off a curious illumination called ice blink by old timers so there is slight difficulty in avoiding them the blacker the night is the more perceptible the ice blink it is chiefly between lights that the sharpest lookout must be kept nevertheless whenever in the neighborhood of ice a very careful watch must be maintained for in addition to the lofty bergs there are also growlers washed masses of ice that lie low in the water lurking evilly as though anxious only to tear the bottom out of a ship and fling her helpless to the sea floor below but even with growlers the seas that race over them and cause the growling note from which they take their name create sufficient noise to give a timely warning and sharp eyes can detect the thin white line of the water breaking upon them bergs come from two sources either they may be large pieces broken away from the great ice barrier which hems in the southern continent or they may have detached themselves from some great glaciers which glaciers calve periodically on account of their resistless forward movement down the ravines they create towards the sea most antarctic bergs are flat-topped lacking those fantastic pinnacles that are usually associated with bergs but many of them are enormous masses several square miles in extent and weighing millions of tons not that the bigger fellows are the more picturesque they are only awe-inspiring gradually acted on by rain above and warm currents of the sea below the berg wears away whole acres are detached and in the course of time the vast concern capsizes and it is a capsized berg that is the most beautiful for its outlines worn by the action of the currents are indeed picturesque fine weather continuing it was possible to settle down again to an orderly routine and jimmy dell found me sufficient work to keep me from fretting i learnt the art of splicing working on the topsail sheet and as a lamp trimmer too i was occupied in getting the steaming lights into shape maybe it was the strenuous nature of this work that caused me to commit the unmentionable sea crime of giving a late relief next morning i was aroused by the skipper yelling down the hatch that eight bells had gone and i made a record turnout being on the bridge within one minute of the alarm as a rule i sleep very lightly but this morning i erred 
failed to respond to the usual call at one bell and so slept on. But I think that quick turnout made amends. It was the boss's watch on deck, and during my trick at the wheel, he talked to me with the utmost freedom and enthusiasm of his last memorable expedition and pointed out the route by which he had crossed South Georgia, the land that was now in view ahead and towards which we were making for refit and overhaul. He called it a land of storm, and the term fits it well. It is a little lonely island situated in the very south of the South Atlantic Ocean, amongst the stormiest seas of all the world. It is over a thousand miles from Cape Horn, the sailor's graveyard, and nearly 3,000 from the Cape of Good Hope. Captain Cook discovered it in 1775 and no doubt was sorry such a dreary wilderness existed. For a long time it was the happy hunting ground of American sealers who played such havoc with the valuable fur seal with which the island then abounded that these animals are now practically extinct. Today, this far-flung outpost of the British Empire, for South Georgia is a British possession and surely one of its most dismal, is the headquarters of five permanent whaling stations, one of them British, one Argentine, and the rest Norwegian. At this time of year, official summer, the snow was present on the mountains in patches, but the valleys, which opened very invitingly to the sea, were all white. In each valley was a glacier, which ended abruptly at the water's edge in a high, pale blue wall. But the whole aspect of the island was grim and forbidding, a wilderness of rock and ice. Preparations were put in hand for entering harbor. The doctor, with me helping, put a genuine harbor stow on the sails and squared up all ropes and gear forward into an orderliness that would not have disgraced a man of war. As we plodded on towards our destination, large numbers of penguins insisted on popping up unexpectedly out of the still water alongside, and Cape pigeons were numerous. Shortly after 3 p.m., we dropped anchor in the safe and sheltered harbor of Gritviken, near to the whaling station. The old-timers amongst the crew were in their element now. You'd have thought they had suddenly come in sight of home. Particularly was the boss exultant. He kept on pointing out familiar sights, and the weight of depression that had recently troubled him was quite shaken off. He was brimming over with vigor and energy, as happy as a sandboy, and sniffed the air like a warhorse, scenting a far-off battle. Sight of past victories must have quickened the fighting blood in his veins, and he could hardly restrain himself from rushing ashore at once. There was so much to do and so little time to do it in that he felt as though every second were precious. The water of the harbor was red with blood, 
and everywhere was the awful, nauseous stench of rotten whale carcasses. Whale oil may be a very necessary thing, but it is beastly in its securing. Several whalers were anchored near where we lay, and alongside the rough wooden quay lay an Argentine bark and a Norwegian cargo steamer. We were promptly visited by the manager of the whaling station, who went ashore with the boss, who was bursting with lively zeal and as soon as possible such of us as were to be spared pulled ashore in the surf-boat to watch the process of flensing a whale on the slip for whalers nowadays do not cut in and try out their blubber in open water they tow their catches into harbour where machinery exists for the purpose the Norwegians who worked at the flensing struck me as being mighty heavy and ponderous and distinctly bovine of feature. The whole system of whaling is, of course, very interesting, even though unpleasant to those not accustomed to it. But it differs entirely from the methods in the old days of the Dundee whalers. It was then counted an exciting, dangerous calling, and to hunt a whale, harpoon it, and bring the fish alongside was about the most thrilling sport in the world. The odds seemed to be somewhat in favor of the whale, and the risks the whalemen ran were unquestionably great. Nowadays, there is so little danger as to be negligible for instead of going out for months and years in lumbering barks hunting the cetaceans in small whale boats and securing them by means of hand harpoons untiring persistence and cold pluck tediously flensing them in the ship's tackles and rendering down the blubber in the tryworks established on the deck fast steamers set forth in quest of the mighty game and these steamers are armed with powerful little guns which project a heavy and deadly harpoon which fitted with a bomb that bursts when the weapon has penetrated into the whale's interior invariably inflicts a fatal wound no doubt this is a more merciful way of dispatching the monsters but it savors of cold-blooded slaughter the whale stands no chance the whalers run no risk. Whaling today is merely systematized butchery. And to me, steeped in the old whaling traditions, primed with the picturesque accounts of real whaling, it was subject for sadness to think of these huge and nowadays helpless creatures being preyed upon so mercilessly. Once the whale ship has secured as many whales as can conveniently be towed, each whale being buoyed and marked until the tail is complete, full steam is made for port and the catch is hauled ashore onto a sloping plain where the blubber is rapidly and scientifically stripped from the unwieldy corpse and conveyed to the tripods to be converted into the oil of commerce. These spectators found it treacherous work walking on the slip, which was several inches deep in a slimy horror of blood and blubber. 
for a considerable distance on each side of the whaling station there is a white fringe of bleached bones washed up by the tide sole relics of what were once huge fish but when man and the sharks and the birds had all taken toll these poor remains were all that showed the magnitude of the sea's finny spoil having completed the round of the works having breathed the oily atmosphere to our complete satisfaction having seen the entire process of creating oil out of dead whale we went for a short walk inland up a slope to a small lake turning to the left along a route where wet moss and sparse grass grew returning by way of the shore where the going was difficult on account of the dry bones littered there so far as i could see the land is mainly barren this wet moss and short tussocky grass flourish to the height of about three hundred feet above sea level but elsewhere i saw nothing but bare scree slopes glacier polished rocks and snow-covered shoulders topped by the high soaring white-clad peaks that never alter though centuries come and go better places than south georgia certainly exist as holiday resorts i must say it is administered by certain britishers notably a magistrate an assistant magistrate two customs officers and one policeman every barrel of oil exported from the island has to pay a tax and this staff is here to see the law is enforced it must be a lonely monotonous life enough i should say these britishers live together in a house at the entrance to gritviken harbour and what they do in their leisure moments puzzles me to know we had a volunteer for the quest here in the shape of a nigger who spoke with a pronounced yankee accent and seemed anxious to enroll himself as assistant cook or something of the sort he paddled alongside in a canvas canoe and seemed anything but happy which is not surprising for south georgia and black men somehow don't seem to mix he had stowed away aboard an outward-bound steamer from st vincent and he must have found the change trying but as he belonged to a breed that is noteworthy for its loafing propensities he appealed to us in vain for employment that night the boss was in excellent spirits and vowed our christmas should be kept on the morrow End of chapter eight